Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Earlier this week, NATO leaders gathered in Madrid for a landmark summit. As anticipated, the Alliance unveiled its revised strategic concept, which sets the course for the coming decade in the context of new challenges such as Russia's invasion of Ukraine and an increasingly assertive China. Other major developments included a diplomatic breakthrough that saw Turkey finally drop its opposition to the applications by Finland and Sweden to join NATO, and announcements of significant force posture changes that will beef up the alliance's eastern flank, increasing from four to six the number of U.S. destroyers that will be based at Rota in Spain, the establishment of a permanent headquarters in Poland, uh, the deployment of two additional F-35 squadrons to the U.K., Um, And of course, this announcement of increasing the forces uh, that NATO keeps at high readiness to 300,000. So lots there. And to unpack these developments and and discuss their significance, um, we're really pleased to have both Doug Lute and Evo Dodler on the podcast with us today. Um, Welcome to both of you. Great. It's good to be with you. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, I think everyone probably knows Evo and Doug, but brief bios. Um, Evo is president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and he served as the U.S. ambassador to NATO from 2009 to 2013. And Doug served as the U.S. ambassador to NATO, picking up from Evo in 2013, serving to 2017. Uh, He is a career Army officer. He retired from active duty in 2010 as a lieutenant general after 35 years of service. So uh, no two better people to discuss uh, all things NATO than our two former U.S. ambassadors there. Um, But actually, Jim, I want to put you on the hot seat first. Um, You were just in Madrid um, taking part in some events and festivities on the side, on the sidelines of the summit. And so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the mood music, to borrow your term, um, that was there in Madrid. Well, thank you. What an unexpected pleasure. I know you hate giving up the, the top spot uh, to me. And I, and so I, I'm, I know this is tough for you and I'll be as fast as I can. Actually, I'll be okay. fast as I can because I want uh, Doug and Evo to give us their views, but just a couple of things from being on the margins of the summit. Uh, in Madrid, uh, and a couple things. One is that uh, China was not the dominant uh, theme there, uh, and that would have been the case perhaps six months ago. Certainly is what the administration has been trying to, for a number of years now, impress upon the alliance is the importance of China, uh, the rise of China. How do you deal with this in Europe? What would NATO's role be? How can we get the allies to come together and see things the way we do concerning China? It, there really wasn't that I could pick up, at least. There wasn't a whole lot of talk about that. Um, there was, surprisingly, uh, a, a, quite a public effort about uh, showing unity. Um, we had a number of uh, speakers uh, cross the divide between the real summit and our side events there to come talk to us. And, uh, and a lot of it was very heartfelt uh, in terms of the need to, uh, need to make sure Ukraine wins. Uh, what would happen should uh, Russia, in fact, uh, get what it wants out of this? Uh, it was a, uh, you know, there, there wasn't an undercurrent that I could pick up of hand-wringing uh, and predictions of, of disasters to come. I will say that certainly in capitals uh, in the past, we're very aware of this fatigue idea or the fraying of the unit. I mean, so it's not like it's not there. 
but I think at the summit, uh, they really came together uh, to present, at least to us and to the media, this idea that they're unified. We'll see how long that takes. I, I, I find it interesting that uh, something I noticed, and uh, we've talked about this, Andrea, uh, that the news media uh, headlines concerning Ukraine, NATO, these kinds of things, certainly in the United States, uh, in the media, uh, discussions have dropped. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but the number of media hits and this type of thing that I've gotten, and probably you too, um, although you are a CNN star, but um, I think that the, there's been quite a decrease. I noticed that, and there was a lot of talk about that as well uh, at the summit. But if you went to the media uh, control room, uh, it was as big as a football field full of journalists, uh, probably interviewing each other, but, um, but it was quite a media event there. But one thing that I don't think has been discussed as much as it should be uh, in the media, but also uh, during the during the summit on, on the sidelines was the discussion that you laid out, Andrea, about the force posture changes. And we, we shouldn't confuse what NATO is gonna do in terms of NATO as an institution with this battle groups and other NATO um, specific force posture, but and also what the United States says it's gonna do. Uh, it's gonna do it on a bilateral basis. It's there to support NATO, of course, but these are bilateral decisions made by the US um, and it's those that I want to talk about a little bit, and I think uh, Evo and Doug, we should delve into this too, because um, they were significant. Uh, they were significant in terms of the type of forces uh, that uh, were uh, either introduced or were increased in Europe, where they were deployed, um, and, and the thinking around why they were going there. I particularly look at the two ships going into Rota. Uh, is very interesting because we know the Navy is very much focused on Pacific. We know also it's very hard to pull Navy ships out of the continental U.S. to go to Europe because that takes a lot of the economic uh, plus up that goes to a U.S. port now is going to be in Spain, and that doesn't make the congressional delegations very happy. So it's, 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 not, a, uh, it's not a small decision to move ships like that, particularly given the Indo-Pacific requirements. So the fact that the Navy, I'm sure, I'm sure the, the Navy was beat about the head and shoulders on this, but they finally agreed uh, to go ahead and do that. that, that that's an example of um, not just a big decision, but also the need in, the, in, this, in this theater in terms of the Navy to have an expanded mission to go beyond just NATO missile defense, but a lot of the presence and presence that could get really hot in the future uh, should things uh, go awry. So that's just an example in terms of uh, something to talk about uh, with this force posture decisions made by the U.S. The moving from 40,000 to 300,000 for the nature response force. I mean, I'm looking at Doug right now and Evo too. I mean, that's a hell of a lift. <laughs> uh, but I think it does show you in terms of the planners what they feel the force requirement could be uh, given certain scenarios and how serious NATO is taking that. Um, because that's that's a big political ask in, in capitals to uh, the money and the energy that goes into uh, that kind of, of, of uh, readiness that the NRF will require. So those are just some of the things, uh, Andrea, that I think uh, should, should in a normal situation be big news. But I think certainly in the United States with the January uh, 6th committee and uh, Roe and all these things that are occupying the headlines now, these haven't gotten a lot of attention, and I think they they should have. So so overall, it's great to be back. Uh, I think this was was it historic? Was it um, uh, transformational, as the section loves to say? 
it's hard to say that they weren't uh, in a lot of different ways. I hate using those terms, uh, but uh, but I think this was certainly a very significant summit. Uh, Doug, I think our, our summit in Wales was equal to this <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think that um, I, I think that certainly a lot of very important things were done and have yet to be unpacked publicly and talked about um, for their significance. Thanks, Jim. A lot there. Um, Evo, maybe just to start with you before we dive into some of the announcements and force posture issues, because those are all really, you know, we'll want to get into those. But on that point about that Jim was just talking about, you know, was this a historic and transformational summit? Do you, in, in your view, did this summit meet the moment? Uh, yeah, I did. And, and I think just, just stepping back a little bit, I, I think um, the administration, unfortunately, I think because of domestic issues, primarily Roe v. Wade coming out uh, on Friday, just when uh, the EU summit ended and, and the uh, G7 summit started. And then, of course, more decisions and the January 6th hearings just wasn't able to to lay out the kind of coherent thought that went into uh, the last week. And the way I look at it is, is that if you include the EU summit, which was a very important summit uh, a week ago, Friday, and then the G7 and, and, and NATO, is they laid out the political, mil uh, political economic, and military strategy. Doug, maybe you want, you want to talk about the, uh, those force posture decisions. Right. I think the place to start in considering the changes agreed uh, this week is where we last left off, right? So after the, the last previous Putin invasion of Ukraine in 2014, when he seized the Crimea, illegally annexed it, and then destabilized the Donbass, uh, NATO took a number of steps, which really provided sort of the foundation for what uh, what was adapted this week, what was adopted That's right. this week. So That's you've right. got, after 2014, the first ever uh, forward presence of uh, combat troops, NATO combat troops on the Eastern flank um, uh, in the form of, of four battalion size formations in the three Baltic states and Poland. Uh, and over the course of this summer summit, you have those four uh, plussed up by four counterpart battalions in the southeast, uh, southeastern uh, flank of the alliance. Uh, and you have in the Baltics and Poland, um, at least a, a plan, an aspiration to move from battalion size formations to brigades. Um, and, and so that's that's quite substantial, I think. And, and that builds off of what was begun in um, in 2014. As for the U.S. contributions, U.S. specific contributions, I think there's a theme here. And the theme is that the U.S. Is continues to provide hard military, high end military capabilities that simply nobody else can provide. I mean, right. nobody else can provide the two squadrons of F-35s. No one else can provide a total of six uh, Aegis capable uh, destroyers. Nobody else has a spare armor brigade or a brigade uh, ready to deploy on, um, on short notice to Romania, for example. Nobody can provide the core headquarters that's headed to Poland. So I think when we think about you know, the, the bigger geostrategic shift of pivot to Asia and the rebalancing and all that sort of thing, what we see coming out of the summit is is really essentially that the U.S. still provides uh, unique and vitally important high-end capabilities that our uh, European allies simply can't uh, can't yet muster. 
So Eva, we'll come back to you in a second because you are making such an important point um, about the kind of economic, political, and military kind of components of, of this narrative coming out of those three summits. But before we go back to that, just Doug, to follow up a few more questions on this force posture. So going in the Baltic states and maybe some other NATO members were making a big push to move from that kind of tripwire concept to something more like that forward defense. Um, were the U.S. is maintaining the kind of toe-to-toe -to -toe deployment still? So, do you think that the with the announcements that we saw, that we have made a kind of discernible shift, moving closer to what the Baltics were hoping for? Are there still areas where you think we fall short? Um, how how if you're sitting, you know, in capitals um, in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, how satisfied are you with what came out of the summit? Do you think? Well, the immediate reaction from the Baltic capitals is quite positive. Uh, and, and they're expressing satisfaction with uh, what, what they achieved. Now, the reality, I think, in military terms is that the three Baltic states are very hard to defend uh, because they just don't have defense always features uh, a very important role of depth. Right. And they're just too small and pressed up against the sea. And they don't have the sort of depth that uh, lends itself to effective defense. However, moving from a battalion, a multinational battalion to a multinational brigade and, and enabling that brigade with precision ground fires and air defense capabilities is a substantial plus up, especially considering the conventional capabilities on display by the Russians in Ukraine, right? So, I mean, to some extent, uh, we're plussing up while we're while we have in tragically in the war in Ukraine sort of disclosed that the Russian conventional military capability is not what we expected. So there's a there's a sort of a rebalancing of the deterrence equation here, I think, in our favor. If I could uh, just do a quick uh, follow up on that, and I know we need to get back to Evo, but uh, Doug, what did you think about? You know, I guess they are decided uh, to lean towards the uh, rotational heel-to-toe forces. You know, there was a, a push over the past number of months to try to get back to some permanent deployments there in Europe. Not quite the 1950s uh, Little America bases there, but something that's more on a permanent basis. Uh, but, that, but, but it looks like it's going to continue to be rotational. What, what do you think about rotations versus permanent deployments? Yeah, I, I've always thought that this was much to do about not much, <laughs> okay? I mean, the difference between the two Ps, right? Permanent and persistent. I mean, if the persistent is back to back, um, there could actually be some value uh, in that sort of rotational presence because there you're rotating complete uh, and coherent uh, integrated combat formations as right. opposed to if you go to a permanent basis, you're, individual, you're, you're rotating individuals. Uh, and their families and all the infrastructure required there and so forth. So I, I was never com, uh, convinced, I, I'm not convinced now that that permanent makes that much of a military difference. Now, you might argue that it makes a political, a symbolic political difference to have American families there with American schools and American clinics and all that, right? But that's a big bill for infrastructure. Uh, and, and I think there's a reasonable question of should we be paying, should we... Should we invest in that kind of physical infrastructure, facilities, and so forth, or should right. we be investing in real military capabilities like high-end air defense, high Mars, and, and that sort of thing? Uh, my vote at this stage would be to go with the military capabilities. Yeah. 
Evo, you're back with us and you're, you were making such an important point kind of about all of the work and kind of the coherence of the narrative the administration and allies built with the EU, the political, the G7, the economic, and then the NATO summit kind of with the military piece about kind of putting together that story and that signal about how we can be better prepared, you know, including to, to confront Russia. But one, if you want to pick that up. Yeah, apologies on the, uh, on the Wi-Fi here um, that went out. I mean, I, I do think it is a, a very coherent story that starts with the EU uh, summit and, and allowing uh, Ukraine to be provided with candidate status, which really gives the signal that Ukraine is one of us. Uh, by the way, I think an issue for NATO to take on in the not too distant future itself. We can't kick this can down the road for as long as we have. But that's a that's for another day. But a very important political signal that there are certain countries that will be part of us like Ukraine and Moldova and others that won't like Russia. So that's that happened on the EU. Then at the G7, uh, it, it tried to put together the economic framework for continuing to pressure Russia over the long term. This is not about Ukraine. Yes, it, the, the, the key is Ukraine started, the war started, the need for sanctions, but these sanctions and the weaning off of Western uh, of energy from uh, from Russia is not about Ukraine. It's about a long term strategy to contain and ultimately undermine Russia. Uh, and that that continued uh, uh, in this uh, in the summit. And at the same time, a very strong signal was being sent to all the fence sitters, all the countries that are not willing to choose between us and a China Russia led bloc that you know, you're better off being part of the world economy that represents 60% of GDP, global GDP, than that other, those other guys who represent 20% of global GDP, which is why you had the Argentinian and then Indonesian, uh, South African and, and Indian um, uh, leaders there. Coming to NATO, the way I look at this and why it is transformative is it, it, it fundamentally said, we are going to build up our military capability for the long run in order to deal with Russia. So uh, to Jim's point early on, six months ago, this might well have been a China strat policy. Listen, there's lip service uh, paid to it. It is in the strategic concept. Yes, it wasn't in the 2010 strategic concept. Hooray. But this is not an alliance. And this meeting wasn't about China. Uh, yes, it's true that the Australian and, and, and South Korean and Japanese and New Zealand leaders were there. By the way, they were also in Chicago in 2012, just I, FYI. Uh, I mean, this is not the first time that we've been doing this. This is long standing. But the focus here is on the military and political buildup uh, with regard to, to Russia. That's what the strategic concept is about. The reason the strategic concept is short, and frankly, it took the 2010 framework and updated it. That's basically what it did, uh, because the original strategic concept that was written was all about the three C's, climate, China, and, um, and cyber. And all of a sudden, we're reminded that Russia is there. And so the focus is on that. Really importantly, because I'm, I don't want to get into the, the, uh, what, what you guys already said on the force posture issues. But the key decision, which was absolutely critical in order to get the summit going, was the Finland-Sweden decision. Had yeah. we failed to do that, we would have come out of the summit saying NATO divided, Russia wins. And now, I think an important point to the Balts, this isn't about uh, just having a shift from, Balt from, from battalion size to combat size. 
we are bringing in two highly capable military countries who, that are capable, 70 kilometers away from Estonia, capable of helping uh, the defense of the Baltics. And by the way, we are now creating a defensive zone for the Russians that isn't just up in the northern Norway uh, and, and in the Baltic states. It runs from the Barren Sea to the Black Sea. So, yes, we will have to defend that. But given what they will face, you know, Putin said the other day, you put stuff in Finland, we will put stuff back on the other side. Well, one, he ain't got a lot of stuff. And two, if it spreads him out, that's exactly what we want to do because it enhances the overall defense of, of NATO. So, yeah, I, I think this is pretty darn historic because it refocuses really for the first time since 1989, if you want to be blunt about it, on a singular threat. And it does it in a way that is, I think, highly reassuring to allies, highly deterring to adversaries, and just a, a part of a larger strategy uh, that is finally coming to the fore. Yeah, I, I want to just uh, foot stomp what Evo said. I think he's absolutely right. And I just wanted to add that um, particularly important was the uh, the uh, decision by the Turks and uh, and by the conferees to uh, to finally come to an agreement that really uh, set the mood, the mood music, uh, Andrea. It really set the mood music for that uh, uh, for that uh, summit. And as Evo said, had they not made that agreement, that mood music would not be as good as it was. And and I think this. This I kept talking about this unity. You could kind of feel it. It was exuberant, and a lot of the summiteers, as they would come talk to us, I, I think that exuberance and that feeling of unity came from that decision, because it happened early. Uh, you know, it, when when we all arrived there, um, there wasn't a lot of optimism that this was going to be agreed to at, at the at the summit. I, the feeling was that it was going to be post summit, and Erdogan wanted more things to come out of it, et cetera. Uh, the rumor started spreading. Uh, I guess it was uh, Tuesday night uh, that that it looked like there was going to be a, a deal, and no one could believe it. Um, and I, I think some of the insiders knew. I've heard that some of the insiders knew that things were beginning to to move in a positive way. But even so, that wasn't even kind of felt until earlier in that day. So it was a surprise. It was so welcomed uh, that, um, as I said, the next day um, it was champagne. And if you were Swedish. You were drinks were being bought for you. Uh, um, Anna a who we all know, was just the uh, being uh, toasted uh, across the town. So, so it was a uh, it definitely, as Evo said, it definitely contributed to this being a uh, not just a historic summit, but one that had some uh, some real exuberance to it too. But you know, <clears throat> this celebration should uh, should be short lived because this is not the final step in the ascension. Right. This is just. The next step, right? So, countries apply, NATO invites, and then it goes back out to the thirty existing member state capitals for their constitutional processes. So, here in the states, two thirds, two thirds yeah. vote, and so forth, right? So, Turkey and President Erdogan will have another shot at this, and it's not crystal clear to me that the written agreement that uh, allowed us to take this intermediate step. Um, will hold uh, so tightly to take us all the way through the process. So there could be drama in front of us. Yeah, weren't the Turks yeah. already out talking about extradition or something? I mean, kind of already yesterday. Right. But, so, but, but yeah, I, I, you know, I agree with that, of course. And, and it, it, you know, it ain't done until the fat lady sings. 
uh, as they say, or in this case, Erdogan agrees uh, ultimately to getting this done. My, my, here's the, 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 the reason why I'm optimistic. I know it came as a big surprise for everybody, but it did not come to a big surprise for people inside the administration uh, in the sense that they had downplayed the, this because they didn't want to uh, predict uh, the, what was going to happen and why. But, you know, frankly, the reality was we know how Erdogan plays this game. He plays it all the time. It's, uh, it, it goes to the wire. Uh, I've been to two summits that were uh, uh, Turkey-led. We had, uh, of course, Rasmussen uh, was blocked from becoming secretary general in 2009. And then, you know, they got what they, they, they got something. It's not about what they get. It's just they make themselves feel important. And in 2010, they held up the strategic concept over the NATO EU language. Uh, in 2012, yeah, 2020. Sorry, sorry. Uh, so they, 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 this happens all the time. And and Doug's absolutely right that it ain't right. It ain't done until it's done. Um, but the U.S. Uh, put an awful lot of pressure uh, on the Turks and were able to do so without overtly giving anything. Although you know, clearly the F-16 announcement wasn't uh, wasn't a coincidence. Um, and 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 that's how this game is played. And we'll play the game again. I do think down the road, there is a real question that we need to ask as an alliance. How long are we going to be playing this game? And what, what, is it, what are we willing to do? Uh, and at some point, you know, having a, a, a NATO member that relies on S-400s and, and other uh, Russian capabilities when we are becoming an anti, a clearly uh, an alliance to deal with the Russian military threat, uh, that's for them. I didn't think it was for this summit. Uh, I don't think it is for Finland, Sweden. Uh, but it may well be down the road. Yeah, I think I, I do think the uh, what what was different a, a bit at this at the summit and why there was such happiness was this. And you're absolutely right. Uh, we we know the Turks and we've seen this before. We weren't surprised that to see this kind of leverage being used. But I think I think publicly, particularly because it was Sweden and Finland, there was such uh, a uh, there was such aggravation and there's such a uh, disappointment and, and and a scratchy. Uh, atmospheric coming from this particular Turkish tactic with Swedes and Finns, and it wasn't resolving itself. It was becoming very public. And I think what what the exuberance came from was relief that that was behind us. Because, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's many, many steps ahead. But this one particularly had a painful feel to it for a lot of people. And it becomes so public uh, that NATO began to uh, look bad because it looked like they couldn't handle these problems internally, that that there was a unity problem. And here's an example, look at the Turks. So I think the fact that this was behind us, uh, that was what made everyone happy, which was we can go on with life uh, at least and get this process moving. So, so Jim, before, and Andrew, before we leave the force posture changes, we, I think we need to come back and talk about this response force, um, which is extraordinary. I mean, of, of all the announcements and adjustments of force posture, this is the one that um, caught my eye. Yeah, uh, I mean, me too. So I definitely wanted to ask this because there's so many questions about what it is, how we'll do it. So I'm, I'm, right. I'm so, that was definitely one of my questions for you, Doug. So, so another that. adjustment, another adjustment that the alliance took after 2014, right, was to beef up its ready forces. So the notion was modest forward presence, even to the point of maybe looking like a tripwire, right, but backed up in depth by um, ready forces uh, able to move in day's notice. And this is a 40,000 strong NATO response force, but inside that 40,000, a 13,000 
um, joint air, land, sea, special operations capacity, able to move within three days, right? Right. And and under the initial authority of SACUR. So this was a big step forward in terms of in terms of NATO ready response forces. Um, compare that to what was announced this week, which is well, there's the 300,000 number. I'm not quite sure even how to unpack that. But the most of that 300,000 is 100,000 ready to move in 10 days. So, you know, you have 40,000 ready to move coming out of 2014, 40,000 ready to move in 15 days. And now you're up in the ante to 100,000 more ready, able to move in 10 days. And this just begs all kinds of questions, practical questions like, okay, which allies are going to provide this 100,000? Who's going to command and control them? How are we going to assure their readiness by way of validation exercises and so forth? Um, how are we going to sustain such a large force? Uh, and is it going to be on an annual rotation basis? I mean, how does this actually work in practice? And I'm reminded that inside the U.S. force structure, U.S. national force structure, we don't have anything like 100,000 troops ready to move in 10 days. I mean, we've got a brigade from the 82nd Airborne ready to move. Um, in sort of 72 hours, we've got an armored brigade that aspires to that kind of readiness, but that's about it on that on those sorts of timelines. So I think this is a very ambitious concept that will only prove out uh, when details are more clear. Absolutely, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I, I think Doug's actually actually right, and and the the question I had actually is how this relates to a previous decision, which I don't know if has ever been implemented, which was, uh, was it uh, in the Trump administration of having 30 battalions and 30 squadrons and 30 ships ready within 30 days. Uh, you add that up, that's 100,000, as far as I can tell, pretty darn close to that uh, already. So how, how many decisions does, the, the problem that I think Doug is pointing to it's easy to make these decisions. It's really hard to then actually implement. Now, NATO has good machinery to do that. And, 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 and Jim knows that better than almost anyone else, how, to, how that machinery works. But, you know, it's one thing to put on a piece of paper. Yeah, we're going to do an, an NRF or an ARF or whatever we're going to call it these days uh, in, in three, of 300,000 total, 100,000 within, within 10 days. It's quite another thing to actually have the forces there. And that's why this summit is not about what is happening tomorrow. It really is a summit that is, that is about the next five to 10 years. And if anybody thinks that um, once you put this ship in motion in this way, that next year we're going to have a new NATO summit in Vilnius and it's all going to be about China, uh, which I know there are a lot of people in the administration who want to do that. That's not what you just set up. You set up a multi-year effort to really get ready to defend uh, Europe. Now, within that, you may be able to shift the relative degree to which you rely on U.S. and non-U.S. forces, although our announcement on U.S. forces kind of may undercuts that. Um, but uh, that's, a, that, that, that's a separate kind of conversation. But we've really locked in. Uh, into a, a strategy of defending Europe against Russia, which, by the way, is what NATO is supposed to be. So I don't have a problem with that. You know, two two quick points, if I could, Andre. I know you're getting ready to say something. Sorry. 
for, for once I was quicker than you. Uh, just two real, two things. One is uh, that 300,000, if, if the expectation at NATO was half that's going to come from the U.S., that ain't going to happen. Uh, this is where the allies are going to have to provide the bulk of that uh, because we're all watching to see who's what countries are going to provide what. That's number one. Number two is certainly this is a sign that uh, for I think finally the Europeanists within the administration have won a, won a victory here. Uh, you know, it could very well have been that, uh, you know, uh, Kirk Campbell and all the Asia hands could have just uh, told the Europeanists to sit down and shut up. It's all about China and gotten their way. And and these decisions coming out of the administration could have been much less than they are now. So I, I also and I'll just speak personally here. I feel that, that win one for the Europeanists, thank God. Uh, and let's see if we can sustain this in the years to come. You know, Jim, the, yeah, or Jim's point on the Europe. The, you know, how much of this will come from Europe, like is was leading into my next question, which was on defense spending, which, you know, harken back to the last NATO summit, it was all about the 2% and the, you know, we, the Trump administration was berating allies for not spending enough. We've obviously had a lot of good news on that front with what Germany is doing. And, how, you know, this war has obviously catalyzed uh, allies into continuing a positive trend that we've seen for a while. But I guess my question is like, where do you all see that headed on in terms of defense spending and building the European pillar within NATO, bringing Finland and Sweden should only strengthen that. Um, but but what, just talk a little bit about where you see that headed and whether or not you think it's enough. Well, I think this this plays to uh, Evo's point about, you know, the summit's great as a sort of landmark event. But what really matters is what happens in the months and years ahead. So the German decision is welcomed by everybody. But where does Germany at 2% invest its defense dollars? Uh, is it in high-end capabilities that are needed? Uh, because uh, the US only the US has such capabilities now. Um, is it in uh, capability shortfalls like uh, long-range air defense? Uh, precision, um, precision munitions, and so forth. Uh, is it in readiness? You know, we talk, we talk sort of quickly about 100,000 troops at 10 days ready status. That's expensive. That is really expensive. So, what will count here is: Are the Germans able to sustain, to actually uh, attain this level of spending, and are they able to spend it wisely? in a way that actually contributes to collective defense. And, and the answers to those questions will play out over the coming months and even years. Um, I'm suspicious uh, of this. Um, and, and the reason for, for that is that when the German government appropriated, the German parliament appropriated 100 billion euros as a supplemental funding uh, tool, uh, I don't imagine that they thought that most of that was gonna be spent on American hardware. And yet the first two big announcements coming up after the 100 billion euro announcement was we're going to buy the F-35 and we're going to buy the uh, American heavy lift helicopter, the Chinook helicopter. Well, those are two big hardware systems that are going to take a lot of that 100 billion euros. So and then on top of that, Germany, of course, leads one of the forward deployed battle groups, the, the one in Lithuania, and it's now committed to moving that towards a brigade capacity. Now, maybe not a brigade worth of troops in Lithuania, maybe some of them remain in Germany, but even if you preposition equipment and increase the readiness of German troops, that's expensive. So 100 billion sounds like, like a sea change, and it's certainly important politically, but how it gets spent will be very telling. 
Evo, anything you want to add on that? Yeah, no, I, I think this is this is all about, you know, as it always is, it's all about implementation. And, and, and as Doug knows, and, and the hard work actually isn't getting to the summit. The hard work is just translating the summit into uh, into real commitments. And that's, that's where the right. diplomacy and the engagement uh, at, you know, both at the high and at a lower level will take place. And, and you know, the strength of NATO is it's an organization that has processes and, and ways in which to do that. Uh, the reality is it's still a political organization. It still requires political leadership by a whole variety of people. And you know, I know that Julie Smith has been uh, working uh, her tail off to, to get to this point, but it's just starting uh, for now that now it's the hard work that will take place. And then her and her team, as well as the support that comes out of Washington to to make that happen is really going to be important because the credibility of the alliance it, it isn't just in making the right choices, which in this case they did. It's then on implementing those choices and making sure that they are real. Uh, for every for everyone to see, and you know that, that includes getting Finland and Sweden into the alliance, uh, as well as meeting all of these really important targets. Um, but you know the good news is they've been doing it for seventy two years, and we know how to do it. And there's no reason to believe that we won't do it this time. And Vladimir Putin is helping us every single day, demonstrating why it's important that we succeed. Evo, Details I know you matter. Evo, I know you have to go in one second, maybe one last question for you. And then Doug, if you can stay on for just a quick second, but just to get back to the political will, and I think we recognize kind of the spirit of the summit, the the intent to demonstrate cohesion and unity, but there are more questions I think that are coming up about our uh, kind of ability to sustain the support over the long term. You know, President Biden was on the one hand out saying we're in this for as long as it takes. But then you had President Zelensky, who's talking about that, you know, the fact that he really hopes that this is over by Christmas, which I read in part is because he's worried about the ability of Western allies to sustain the support. So I don't, how, how, do, how do you see it? I don't know if you got any signals out of this. What, what do you think about yeah, that? I mean, I'm, I'm, when it comes to Ukraine, I'm worried about sustainability. Yeah. Uh, I think there's two, there's, there's two problems. Uh, one is we're just running out of stuff. I mean, yeah, exactly. if you, as in Europe in particular, has spent the last 25 years uh, not buying anything and anything you bought, you expended in, in, in Afghanistan, which is, you know, let's remember uh, uh, they were there in large numbers, then there's just not a lot of them to, to ship out uh, to Ukraine at the same time that they're all of a sudden saying, waking up to the fact that they, maybe they'd actually have to defend themselves. Uh, and so there is a, there's just an equipment and ammo and everything shortage. Um, and, and we're running out uh, of, of some of the high, the high end stuff, either because we don't, we need it for ourselves or because it is just too complicated uh, uh, to, to sell. And the last point, which I think the white house is very concerned about, which is that um, uh, it, uh, this package that we just passed the 40 billion may well be the last package. If the Senate goes uh, to the other party, then while McConnell was very helpful getting through the 40 billion, is it going to be equally helpful when he controls the calendar and the agenda and when he can get a, a cheap political victory? Uh, uh, I don't know. But if in the White House, you're worried about that. So I, I do think the next six months when it comes to Ukraine are pretty darn critical uh, for. Uh, so I think that's what Zelensky is basically uh, saying. 
at some point they're just going to run out of people. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the reality is the Russians are bigger than the, than the Ukrainians. And there is a limit to what we can do. The, you know, short of us getting directly involved, which is the quickest way to end this war, uh, but also the quickest way to risk uh, uh, escalation, um, there, there is a limit to what we're going to do. And I think this next six months are pretty darn critical. Yeah, I know you have to run and Jim has to run. I don't know, Doug, anything that you want to end on on that note? Well, I, I just echo Evo's uh, point. I, I think this is a war of attrition on two levels. It is a war of attrition tactically um, because both sides are suffering manpower losses, equipment losses. Certainly the Ukrainians are suffering civilian casualties, civilian infrastructure costs and so forth. So it's playing out tactically. But to Evo's point, it's playing out uh, on a broader scale strategically. Uh, and this is a contest between between Putin on one side and the US-led coalition and Zelensky on the other side, and who can endure this the longest? And on, you know, Putin's got to contend with the uh, historically uh, biting sanctions uh, that have been imposed on him, but they it will take time for those to take full effect, right? Um, and on our side, we've got to deal with uh, sustaining uh, attention and energy and support of Ukraine in the face of supply chain disruptions, so European energy, for example, uh, food supply chains, and then the impact of those on inflation, which hits, you know, every American is reminded of that when we, when we pump gas into our cars. So this is, this is a contest of staying power, both tactically and strategically. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not 100% confident that we're gonna, um, that we're gonna persist here, that we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna make it. Uh, I think the summit was a good step in that direction. It was a good demonstration of staying power, uh, but it's not a done deal. Yeah, really important points. I mean, the point about defense industry is one that I've really been thinking a lot about. Like, can we just sustain the military aid at the at the the level that we've had, and and certainly all of these kind of the the pain that our societies are feeling, especially as Putin is using kind of the gas lever. Um, with the Germans over Nord Stream 1 to really, I think, start upping the ante and applying pressure to our Western society. So lot, lots of questions. Um, but again, I think both your points about the fact that the NATO summit was a really important step. It did put on a show of unity. It did establish kind of the baseline blocks for things that need to be implemented in the coming um, months and years. Uh, that puts the, the alliance on better footing in this longer term competition. So this was a great conversation. I have about 15 other questions that I would lo have loved to ask you, but um, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and hopefully we'll be able to do it again soon. Great. Thanks to both. Great. Thanks all. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.